Well, I'd like to begin a new sermon series with you today, this fall. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, we're going to be thinking this fall about uh, what it is to have a Christian way of thinking and living in this world, sometimes called the Christian worldview, and how today we'll see especially Jesus is the answer. It's the theme of the book, and it will be the overview that we have this morning of this uh, purpose as, as the Lord has a word to renew our minds in a confusing and sometimes dangerous day that we might know the truth and have joy in it. I'd like to read to you a little bit longer passage than normal to give you a flavor for the book in its first chapter. And I'd like to read to you from verse 1 down to verse 23 of Colossians. And I'll give you a brief overview of uh, its, its message in the study that we are going to have. Starting here in verse 1, though, let us read the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word, the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and tr in truth, and also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless 
and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that this good news would again be preached to to us who uh, also in in so many ways uh, are prone to wander, prone to forget, prone uh, not to possess our possessions or to remember the great things that the Lord our God has done for us. We seek to make our way in a world that has in so many ways forgotten you, forgotten the purpose for which it was made. And we pray that you would not only remind us, but through us to be able to tell many others of this good news We pray that you would give us in this study a a wisdom and a new understanding of of your purpose in this world that you have made for your glory and how we might best serve it. For Christ's sake, amen. Yesterday, I asked some people going to the game, or at least going to the tailgate of the game, if I might be able to persuade them to become consistent atheists. I was going to try some reverse psychology yesterday. Uh, Well, many people said, um, I'm already not very religious, but what would it mean to be a consistent atheist? Well, well, I had my book in my hand, my atheist Bible, if you like. Uh, This is not actually an atheist Bible, if there were such a thing. This is called The Atheist's Guide to Reality by Alex Rosenberg, a philosopher of science at Duke University of some note. Uh, He himself is an atheist, writing to atheists in order that they might live consistently with their beliefs or lack thereof. He says, for instance, look, science has told us all that there really is, all that there is in this world, and it's time that we start living our lives on that basis. Well, like what, you ask? Oh, I know I've shared this before with... uh, Some of you have heard this, but just humor those who have not. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of this universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? No, everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong? Good and bad. There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. What is love, and how can I find it? Love is the solution to a strategic interaction problem. Don't look for it. It will find you when you need it. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Does the human past have any lessons for our future? Fewer and fewer, if it had any 
to begin with. If there's no God, then purpose and dignity and morality and every other ideal that you could possibly name are chemical reactions in your brain that have perhaps been adapted to help you get your DNA from one generation to the next, but nothing more. There is nothing higher than that. You're a bag of molecules. Face it. And Rosenberg and others are saying, if this is the truth, which we have all been taught from our youth, why don't we start living accordingly? That is to live according to our worldview consistently. Now, of course, I told people I don't believe any of that for a minute, (laughs) except this, that once God is gone, once he has left the room, once you have excluded him as the maker and sustainer and the purpose of all things, he's right. This is what you have left. Not nihilism, but simply physics. Nothing higher. Without God, this is all you have left but I would like to tell you about a much better way. Here in the West, we still live in a culture that has been shaped by Christianity. As some people have said, we're still living off the Christian capital of previous generations. We still have, in so many ways, still this lingering view of the world and morality, which we're trying to maintain without God. It's not going very well. We're trying to still maintain a Christian worldview without Christ, as the philosophers call it. Uh, A worldview? What's a worldview, someone will ask? Well, kids, a worldview uh, is, is, is your deep view of the most important questions in, in life, the fundamental questions, including questions of origin, that is, where did you come from? Questions of purpose. What are you here for? Questions of ethics, like what's gone wrong with the world and how can what's wrong be made right? With these and many other questions that occupy the uh, deep space in your heart, you too have a worldview, an understanding of where you've come from and where you're headed and what's wrong and how to fix it. Worldviews are like belly buttons, someone said. Everyone has one, though you may not think about it or talk about it very much. But unlike belly buttons, worldviews are extremely important to give your life meaning and direction. And atheism, as we've seen, as I've begun to show you, has some definite answers to those important questions, does it not? If you want to be consistent with that worldview, Alex Rosenberg will show you the way. Because if you ask the question, who am I? Atheism sees man as the result of random evolutionary processes processes, that you are, in fact, a single-celled organism all grown up. Look at you. You are a glorified ape who has lost most of his hair. You are a cosmic accidents of atoms with no rhyme or no reason that will soon be a random collection of atoms again. Who am I, according to atheism? Nothing. Why am I here? Well, Rosenberg said, just dumb luck. We could improve slightly, as he does in future chapters, because your DNA says, you are here for the purpose, therefore, being programmed by your DNA to enjoy your life while you have it and to reproduce your DNA if you can. 
But there is no higher purpose than we might decide for ourselves, uh, other than what we might decide for ourselves. There is no higher meaning and purpose without God. Who am I? Well, according to atheism, I'm nothing. Why am I here? To make the most of it. And what's wrong with the world? Well, I suppose the people are either insufficiently educated or insufficiently governed and directed. That's what's wrong with the world. People either don't know enough or they're not being watched enough. And how can what's wrong be made right? Obviously more education and more government. Although we have the question, who's governing the governors? Well, I for one am very, very thankful that people are living inconsistently with such a worldview. You know, the longer that we are heading in this current direction, the longer God is being cut out of the fundamental thought of our nation, the more consistent people will be. That there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no judgment of the world, as we prayed earlier, and then there is no hope, as it is in Jesus. Now this, I say, is the state of uh, the worldview of uh, atheism, but this is a great challenge for Christians, because we are living in what's called a secular world. We are living in a world that removes God from its thinking, which frankly excludes God from nearly every sphere of life. Um, I heard one, one girl say this in a very tender way. She mentioned in a very unconscious or very um, uh, honest way, you know, God isn't on Sesame Street. I mean, this is a little part of her life that, that she enjoyed. But in it, God wasn't there. And God isn't in this sphere, and in this sphere, and in this sphere. Oh, you can have a little bit of God. But for the rest of life, forget God. Forget God. And we are told on every hand, from the classroom to the break room, God has no place. How powerfully we are all being affected by this godless, atheistic worldview. But this is not a new problem, of course. In fact, here in our passage, we are reminded that there are far, far better answers to these questions of life, of why I am here and who I am and what's wrong with the world and how it can be made right. We are told, for instance, here in verse 15, if we ask, who am I? Well, he puts it right up front. We are the, we are the creation of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation by whom all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth and so forth. If secularism says that I'm just a great cosmic accident, here we read, I have been created by Christ, by God incarnate, God with us, the image of the invisible God, by whom all things were made. When God said, let us make man in our image, that through that word it was done. I am not the accidental coalition of random processes. I am the crowning glory of God. And this has vast implications for life and law and human rights and a number of other things that modern people think are very important, but which are very, very difficult to justify if you have cut God out. Why am I here? Well, verse 15, all things were created through him and for him. 
All things were created for him. The ultimate purpose of all things is to bring him glory and honor so that he might have, we read, the preeminence in all things. He's to have the supremacy in your life, the preeminence in your life. He is to be your very purpose for living and existing. And you think, well, what would the world look like if we grasped this preeminence of Christ as it related to our very purpose and the purpose of the world? Well, if we saw to that in our education, as Baxter said, it would be that Christ would be the beginning and the end and the supreme goal of all things. Well, who am I? I am the crowning glory of God's creation, the one who has knit me together in my mother's womb. Why am I here? To bring glory and honor to God through Jesus Christ. What is wrong with the world and how can it be made right? Well, Verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. You see, being affected by an evil worldview is certainly no new problem. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong is that you are the crowning glory of God. You were created to live and bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but you and I and all of man has departed from God and now by nature hostile toward the one for whom we were made, alienated and enemies in our mind, living in wicked works. This is what is wrong with the world, ultimately, I am. Many years ago, the Times of London had an essay uh, uh, contest, if you like. It invited leading intellectuals to submit articles to the newspaper on, an, on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? Some wrote essays about this problem, some about that. The shortest essay by far was submitted by G.K. Chesterton. He wrote simply, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And this was his point exactly. Why we rightly lament, while we rightly oppose the things that are wrong in government, in industry, in society. The root of the problem is far worse than all of these things combined. Every one of us knows the problem because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. I am the problem. I am the measure of all things. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my destiny. I am the one who decides. That is the spirit that has plunged this race into the fall, misery, and death that is everywhere around us. And how can what is wrong be made right? Continuing in verse 21, yet now. I just love these times when Paul writes of all the problems and then yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. That Christ has died for us once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has reconciled you to God and what a hope and what a glory awaits, not only you, but this very world. 
20, verse 27, I didn't read, but it's a beautiful verse. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is writing these things to the people in the pagan city of Colossae. Uh, it's a small town, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, just uh, 10 miles from Laodicea in the uh, Lycus Valley, the population of which was mostly Gentile, um, though a sizable Jewish population had settled there a few centuries before. Uh, the old scholar Bishop Lightfoot wrote, quote, Without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. That's interesting. It's as though Paul addressed a, a letter to the New River Valley, uh, right? Well, to the common folks in a small town, he wrote some of the greatest things that have ever been written. He, and why did he write? Because the people there had been raised among the profound lies of their culture, that they were slaves, that they were the... Um, servants who had been dominated by Caesar, who is Lord, who is the image of the invisible God, that uh, their hope was in obeying, and uh, that what was wrong in the world was that Caesar had not yet been fully obeyed, but that when he was more fully obeyed, all things would go well with us. Well, in so many ways, he is undoing that. And not only that, he is also warning the church in many ways against very popular lies of uh, their culture in Phrygia there. Uh, Phrygia, known for pagan magic, having a sizable Jewish population, some of whom were converted but not telling the truth as it is in Jesus, and many other people uh, leading them astray to idolatry, telling them about demons, other powers. Um, all of that is going to be replaced by the truth of the short letter of what we have in Jesus. That will be our study this fall. And I'd like to make to you three introductory points to our study today, all from this passage. First, the need for maturity. The need for maturity. One thing that leaps right off the page when we begin the book of Colossians is Paul's great concern for the maturity of these people. Verse 9, we read, he constantly prays on their behalf for this reason. Since we heard, we don't cease to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to glorious power, and so forth. Here is his passion for this church. It's apparently a fledgling church. Paul has never been there. Um, he has a passion that they might begin well. Do they know God's will? Do they have a spiritual understanding? Are they increasing in the knowledge of God? How is their walk with the Lord? Are they fruitful in serving Him? Are they strong and, and, and thankful and persevering? He desires these believers, in verse 23, continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is the, the drumbeat that goes throughout the passage. This is his great reason for writing. He describes his ministry in verse 28, a little past where we read, Him we preach, Christ, warning every man and teaching every man all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect. Some of you have 
complete, or some of you have mature, mature in Christ Jesus. To this end I labor, striving according to his working that works in me mightily. It is very possible for us, I mean all of us do this, we, we, we know the truth and yet we, we live in a very inconsistent way. We, we, we maybe try to take Christianity and paste it in to our existing way of life, way of belief, and worldview. This summer when we studied Christianity, Christianity and liberalism, we certainly saw that, where Christianity was, a, was attempted to be pasted in to a naturalistic worldview, and it didn't go well, right? Well, in the same way, we need to live consistently as Christians. We need maturity, desperately. George Gallup, more than a generation ago, started asking the American population a question. Would you say that you've been born again? That question was first asked in 1976 and asked every year since. And some of you might know the significance of 1976. Who was elected president in 76? Anyone old enough to admit? Do you remember? Jimmy Carter, who was our born-again president. He was very open about the fact that he was born again, and everyone wondered, well, how many people are born again, and what does this mean? To everyone's great surprise, in 1976, there were a whole lot more born-again people in America than the mainstream media and even the churches realized. 32% of Americans said yes. However, let me read to you something from Professor David Wells at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, now retired, from his pamphlet, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, Banner of Truth. He writes, 1993, a very interesting study was done to revisit George Gallup's figure of 32% of American adults who claim to be reborn. What they did is just ask a few more modest tokens of commitment as additional tests. In addition to asking, are you born again? They also asked, do you go to church with some regularity? Do you pray with some regularity? And do you have some minimal structure of formal Christian belief? When those tests were added, the figure of 32% dropped to 8%. And then if we were to probe just a little more, and he asks a few more token questions. He says, based on some ongoing research I have seen, my guess is the figure may be no more than 1% or 2%. What this means is that we have been living in a fool's paradise. For when Gallup produced his figures in the 70s and has repeated them every year since, it seemed like the evangelicals were on a roll with such wide popular support, with churches that were growing. It looked as though we were on the verge of sweeping all our religious and cultural opponents before us. That was why these figures stirred such an alarm in the secular media and why they created heartburn in mainline Protestant denominations and why they produced a little power-mongering amongst evangelicals. But it turned out to be an optical illusion. The reality that we have to face today is that we have produced a plague of nominal evangelicalism which is as trite and superficial as anything we've seen in Catholic Europe, end quote. Well, according to the last poll I've seen published, the number of born-again people in America has risen to 35% today. We're on a roll. I found that research in an article. The title was, 
the title of the article was, Most Adult U.S. Christians Don't Believe That the Holy Spirit is Real. How can you hold these things together? No Holy Spirit, born again. Churches cannot rest in the fact that they have great swelling attendance. We have to ask the right questions about what kind of Christian maturity we are producing. There was a growing Christian community in Colossae, rapidly growing, we know from history, but was it maturing? Was it growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now that is what Paul is after. The need for maturity. Second, the danger to the church. The danger to the church. This church was in danger, a danger that we know something about as well. But here's a brief overview of the dangers. Um, We read in chapter 2, verse 4, of people who speak words that are persuasive but are actually deceiving the Christians. There are very plausible, enticing teachings out there which must be avoided. Verse 8 to a philosophy which can cheat us or even rob us of our salvation, deceptions which are vain or empty according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world, but not according to Christ. Several references later to some in the Bible called the circumcision group, the Jewish uh, Christians who had a very wrong understanding, a heretical understanding of the gospel, who had influenced Peter at one point, trying to get the Gentiles now to adopt some of their practices as though you need something more to make you complete or mature or to grow in Christ. He mentions requirements of the law, food laws, certain holy days, other traditions, verse 16. Paul mentions the false humility and the worship of angels, people seeing visions of things, visions which are really just in their own heads, right? But they say, I have something from the Lord. Doctrines and practices which can cheat us of our reward, verse 18. And the condemnation of all the doctrines of men and all the things that have come into this, uh, all the things that have come from the world and not from Christ. These things, he admits, have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He wants to warn them against everything that would move them away from the faith and practice which are ours in Christ. Now, I'll just say briefly, I think you can see that these troubles are always with us, still floating around today. Legalism, claims of visions, traditions of men, all kinds of vain philosophies, which admittedly have some appearance of wisdom. In fact, these things seem to perfectly agree with the spirit of our age. And these things don't usually come in to supplant or to reject what we've already received, just to add to it. We we will tell you the secret to spiritual life. We, We will tell you things that will make you more spiritual, more mature, more knowledgeable, give you fullness, these buzzwords in the letter. Paul says, beloved, you have received the fullness in Jesus Christ. He is the full answer. All these other things are worthless and vain and can cheat you or even rob you. This is the danger behind the letter. Third and finally, 
The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. This is the great answer of the letter, which we'll see time and time again to illustrate. Several winters ago, there was a pastor preaching a series of messages in the Carolinas. I read about he was uh, staying up with some friends in the mountains of Asheville. One night, he was scheduled to speak in Greenville, South Carolina, a little over an hour away. And he was going to be back very late. So as he said goodbye to his hosts, he said that he'd be back around midnight. And another family from the church had offered to drive him back and forth to Greenville. So he said goodbye and went down the mountain to preach. But late that night when they drove him back to the house, the house uh, light was on. And so the family thought, well, uh, there we go. All is well. The hosts were expecting him. So um, he sent the car on the way. He walked in the bitter cold of the night up to the porch. And by the time he got into the door, his nose and his ears were already numb with the winter wind that sometimes kicks up in the mountains there, if you know. So he tapped on the door. No answer. He tapped louder. No response. It was intensely cold, and so he went around and beat on the kitchen door. And then on the side window, nothing. Frustrated and getting colder by the second, he decided to walk by a, a neighboring house so he could maybe call his hosts on the phone. Perhaps that would wake them up. Um, but on the way, he realized that maybe knocking on somebody else's door at midnight in the wilds of North Carolina was not particularly safe. So he decided he would walk a little further to find a public phone. He ended up walking several miles. At one point, he slipped and slid down the bank on the side of the road into two feet of icy water. Soaking wet, nearly frozen, he crawled back up the road and walked until he finally saw a motel light. He woke up the manager, who was kind enough to let him use the phone, and he called his friends at the house. His host answered in a sleepy voice. I'm sorry to wake you up, the pastor said. But I knocked and I knocked, and I couldn't get anyone in the house to wake up, and now I'm several miles down the road. Would you please come here and get me? And his host replied, my dear friend, you have a key in your overcoat pocket. Don't you remember? I gave it to you right before you left. And the preacher looked into his pocket, and sure enough, there was the key all the time. Now, what's the point of this true story, other than the fact that you cannot expect pastors to remember anything when they're going to preach. Right? What else does it illustrate? Um, it illustrates the miserable, futile experience of people who forget that they have been given Christ the key to everything, and they go looking for some other way. And as they do, every decision they make is more wrong, is more miserable, is more leading them astray. Everything that pastor tried to do ended up making him more frustrated and more miserable. One idea after another got him farther and farther away from getting in, and all the while, he had the key. Well, in the same way, Paul says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or heir over all creation. It doesn't sound like Christ is lacking anything, I ask you. Does he sound insufficient to you? Does it sound like there might be something else beside him that you might need for your life and salvation? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of God should dwell. 
Is there anything in heaven and earth that you need outside of Christ? He created it all. He sustains it all. It's by him. It's for him. All things, thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, whatever it is that you need or you're afraid of. I tell you what, he made it. He sustains it. And Paul is writing this letter supremely so that you would be astounded at all Jesus Christ is, the greatness of your Savior. I I think the section in the first chapter is probably his greatest uh, passage on Christ. Maybe Philippians, probably Colossians. Is there anything else that you could possibly need outside of him? There is a sense of awe and wonder about these passages. There's a sense even of mystery at the infinite greatness and the reverence and the admiration which he conveys. And so Paul, in the midst of confusing worldviews and so forth, Paul wants us to fall down at the feet of Jesus like the Apostle John did at one day, like one dead, as he shines forth in his glory and to know that this is the one who loves you, who adored you, who made you, for himself, and will surely be with you. There is nothing, no nothing, that you could possibly need or lack outside of him. Nothing that you could find to add to him. Nothing that could add to your salvation in him. For if you've been saved by him at the beginning, you are to go on in him, he says, rooted and built up in Christ. And so I tell you in conclusion, brothers and sisters, there is no stage of Christian experience in which Christ will be anything less to you than your all in all. He can never be more or less sufficient. In whatever state you come to him, whatever you need, whatever you need afterward, Christ is all and all. Whatever you may fear, whatever difficulty or trial, whatever sins in your past or your present and your future, Christ is all that you need. He is our hope and joy. If you are without God, And without hope in the world, I began in so many ways talking to you without telling you I was doing that. To have you rethink your position, to recognize that there's really only two choices in this world. And Colossians is written to cut the ground out of every empty promise you've believed, of every false hope you have, and to show you that there is something infinitely great and glorious and wonderful It is yours for the taking in Jesus. It is the glory of Christ that shines forth at every page of this letter. I conclude with the words of old John Owen as he addressed the parliament, the House of Commons in his day so many years ago. He said, Christ is the way. Without him, men are wanderers and vagabonds. He is the truth. Men without him are liars like the devil of old. He is the life. Men without him are dead in trespasses and sins. He is the light. Men without him are in the darkness and do not know where they are to go. He is the vine. And men that are not in him are but withered branches prepared for the fire. He is the rock. Men not built on him are carried away in a flood. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the author and the one that completes, the founder and the finisher of our salvation. And he who does not have him has neither the beginning of good, nor shall he have the end of misery. John Owen. Dear friends, how many of God's own people
are still, it seems, as it were, still staggering in the dark, looking and looking and looking, when all the while they have Christ the key. Here is our hope and joy. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, most merciful and gracious Lord, your love has compelled us to know you, to seek you afresh, and we pray that as we study this very short letter that it should have a very long impact on our lives, that we would be able to of which some of us have been told, some of us have believed, some of us have told others, some of us have lived too consistently with for too long. We also wish to have the full benefit of that which you have inspired for our admonition. We pray that you would bless those who come who have not yet had their lives grounded in Christ, rooted in Christ. Perhaps they've begun, but they have never understood what it is to have him as their all in all. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would bless them this fall with the renewing of heart and purpose and joy and strength rooted and grounded in Christ. And finally, our Father, we pray for those who have no hope, for those who have believed the, the lies of those who have said that there is no purpose, there is no future. Oh, Father, may you give them a future and a hope in Jesus. May they find with joy everlasting life 